Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. I'm your host, Ben Carson. So delighted to be with you today. And we have a fabulous guest, Ms. Kimberly Ells. She's a researcher on family issues and a policy advisor. She has spoken to the UN on family issues and uh, has written the book, The Invincible Family. Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. Can't wait to hear why that's the case, but welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You know, it's hard to believe that we actually have to argue for the importance of the family, but that's where we are these days. What made you write this book? Well, there are a couple of things. Um, first of all, there was an incident that kind of jolted me into action. About 10 years ago now, I was doing some other research online and I came across um, a document that I found to be very disturbing and concerning. And it, what it was was a document promoting sexual rights for children, for youth. And um, I, I was intrigued, to say the least. And so I got looking into that and uh, discovered that it was published by International Planned Parenthood Federation. And um, I thought, well, if this is if this is in the mainstream now, I'm going to be in the mainstream fighting this because uh, the whole idea of, of promoting sexual rights for children and promoting children as sexual beings is is very concerning to most parents, including myself, who am the mother of five kids. And so I decided that uh, I was going to fight this agenda. And so um, with that in mind, I quite quickly, I think by the grace of God, God got connected with some other people who are already in this fight, even at the global level at the United Nations, Family Watch International. Um, I joined forces with them. And that's where my true education of, uh, mm. of what was happening at the global level um, against the family really, really started to bloom. Yeah, well, you know, so many people around the world think of the United Nations as, you know, righteous and wonderful and the advocate of all good things. What surprised you the most about them and their attitudes? Well, um not everything the UN has done or has tried to do has been bad and terrible. Um, and, you know, there's a quote that the UN is the, the world's last best hope for humanity. Um, I disagree with that. I think that the family is the last best hope for humanity. And um, the things that I've seen unraveling at the United Nations are extremely anti-family. 
um, in many cases, very anti-man, uh, anti-gender, and anti-child. Mm -hmm. And in the name of women's rights, they actually enact a whole bunch of policies and programs that in the end end up hurting women more than they than they help them. And one specific thing that is most concerning that's related to what got me into this fight is the uh, promotion of what's called comprehensive sexuality education. And um, the powers that be at the United Nations have been trying very hard for very long to get this enshrined as a human right for all children. And uh, the forces on the other side, the side that I've been fighting on and my colleagues um, are, have been trying to keep that out of, of consensus documents, to which to this point, we've been successful at doing. So kudos to many of the UN uh, entities and um, ambassadors and representatives who are fighting for the family. But it is getting to be a very difficult fight. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, the UN, uh, they actually said to normalize pedophilia or doing things to normalize it by saying sexual conduct involving persons below the domestically prescribed minimum age of consent to sex may be consensual in fact, if not in law. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty shocking mm -hmm. stuff coming from the United Nations. Right. And, and that's come out just recently. And I'm so grateful that this this is coming to the forefront, because when I heard that, I said, well, of course, this has been the agenda for the past 20 years. And, uh, you know, and I've been bo on board for 10 years. Let me give you another example. So the document that I cited just earlier that I, I originally found was called Exclaim. And there's a quote from that document that says sexuality and sexual pleasure are important parts of being human for everyone, no matter what age, no matter if you're married or not, and no matter if you want to have children or not. And then it goes on to say that the governments and leaders have a duty to protect and fulfill all sexual rights for everyone. So wow. that's very clear as well. The, the quote you, you read is very clear, indicating that their belief is that minors can and should consent, consent to sexual activity. And that's nothing new, I'm, I'm sad to say, at, at the global level. Um, the, the document I cited and many others clearly are influencing children framing sexual pleasure as simply a human right for all people at all ages. And that's very concerning when you get into, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that mean for children? What does that mean for adults? What does that mean for, you know, children having sexual contact with each other? It gets into all these kind of um, very sticky and very uh, important issues that most parents are very concerned about, are very interested in. And so, um, Another document from the UN that, that came out in a revised version in 2018 is the International Technical Guidance on Sexuality Education. It's published by UNESCO, and it's meant to guide sexuality instruction throughout the world. And uh, it is laced with sexual rights ideology, the idea that sex is a human, sexual pleasure is a human right. In addition to sexual pleasure, seeking sexual information and obtaining sexual services. Those are kind of three main areas that are considered sexual rights. And um, UNESCO and the, all the other logos of the UN agencies that are on that booklet agree. The World Health Organization, UNICEF, UNFPA, they are all on board with the yeah. children's sexual rights 
agenda. And we, we need to wake up to this. And, and, and in fact, you know, over the past few years, most parents have been very concerned at what they've been seeing in their children's schools and schools across the nation. Well, what, what my book does largely is tell where that is coming for, from, where most of that is emanating from. It's, it's, it's not just a, a school here and there. It's a global effort, effort to sexualize children and to legitimize that position and enshrine sex rights for children as a human right. Well, you know, in the past, they've sort of implied anybody saying things like that. It was a conspiracy theory, but you know, now they're, they're not even trying to hide it anymore. It's just right out in the open. You know, I was at a school system, and I asked if I could see some of the books they were talking about. And I got to tell you, <laughs> it was frank pornography for elementary school children. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. Mm-hmm. And this is actually being fed to them. Right. And it appears to be a global agenda. Right. It is. And that's what I lay clear and make clear in my book. And I show how that is, in fact, happening. Do you think it's actually gaining credibility, pedophilia, or do you think people are smart enough to resist? Well, I think two things. I think there's a huge push uh, to to legitimize pedophilia. However, and that's very concerning, and there's a lot of money and power behind it. And so we've got to fight that. But I've been very encouraged at recent events. Uh, as you mentioned, this this recent quote that came out from the uh, UN-backed document, you know, uh, basically with minors consenting to sex, there's been a huge outcry against that and about that. And as you'll recall, a, a few months ago with the uh, Balenciaga scandal with where children were posed in this, uh, you know, glamorous brand uh, with uh, sexual objects and in sexual mm-hmm. ways. And thankfully, most of the decent people of the world, parents or not, were not okay with that. So while there is a huge push to normalize these things, and it is gaining steam, um, I think there's a great deal of common sense still coming to bear. And when it comes to sex and children, uh, people, and especially parents, are um, are not going to let that go forward. They're going to fight it. Well, what, what, what do you think is the best way for parents to fight? I know some people are sitting there wringing their hands and saying, well, I'm just, I'm just a single person. You know, what can I do? Right. Well, there's many things we can and should do. And I'm going to start with the most basic, which most many people kind of brush over like, oh, of course, maybe that. But no, the most important thing that each of us can do, and it's actually the most important thing to do, is to teach what we believe is right in our homes, in our families, to teach our children what we believe is right about gender, sex, marriage, and the family. And to do that regularly, to be addressing these issues. There's so many opportunities to talk about these issues with our children at an at age appropriate times. And we need to take those opportunities and we need to create opportunities. And I don't mean just talking about uh, logistics of sex or, you know, uh, sexual, you know, birth control or contraception. Although those things can certainly be talked about. What I mean is even something a little bit deeper. And um, that goes to the importance of sex as a power, as a power to create life. That's how new human beings are brought into being, 
is is through sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. And and that's very significant. And that is a weighty responsibility that people um, should be committed to one another before they engage in sexual intercourse or any sexual activity. And um, our children are not hearing that message. That used to be the common social message, right? That uh, yes. uh, m- marriage was the place where sex could appropriately take place that bonds the family together it creates children it creates a natural cradle where where children can be born into the best possible circumstances but that message is almost nowhere to be found these days so if we want our children to find and believe that and to lead them down the path that'll uh, statistically bring them to the greatest uh, happiness and success in life we need to teach them the the weighty power of sex in the meaning of it, and and the value of the family as as a unit, and so it's helpful, you know, if we as families uh, as, find people to associate with, either in a neighborhood level or church level or whatever, that that we can surround ourselves with people who are like minded, and and I think as as these choices are becoming more stark. Um, People will emerge, you know, in our lives that we can align with, uh, because it is difficult for our children to stand against the uh, kind of tsunami of sexual information and pressure that's coming at them. But you know what? They're up to the task, and we are too, as their parents. And so, um, you know, teaching our children is is the first and best way to win this war. Way, but I'm convinced we will win it at home. However, there are things that we need to do policy wise um, that will be of great help. First of all, I mentioned comprehensive sexuality education, and I I detail that at at length in the book and give examples of that. Um, There's also a website I would point people to that's stopcse.org, stands for Stop Comprehensive Sexuality Education.org. And it it gives examples of curriculum, shows the international documents, but behind the sexual rights, children's sexual rights movement and so forth. And then also then you can click on your state and find out what's happening there. So people need to be aware of the push for for CSE, Comprehensive Sexuality Education, and oppose it. I, I and my colleagues have opposed it in here in my local state, in the legislature. Every couple of years, there's a bill brought forward to enshrine CSE as the, the method of, of teaching uh, sexual education at school. And I live in a very red, very conservative state. And still, we have to be very vigilant in in fighting that. And as you mentioned, in getting truly pornographic materials out of our schools and being vocal until until that happens. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, the left has a tendency to exaggerate and engage in hyperbole and mm-hmm. say that uh, the people on the other side want to get all books out of school. Mm-hmm. They don't want anybody to read anything. <laughs> right. And it's, it's kind of funny to look at them, but you know, people who are not well-educated or well-informed can easily fall victim to some of that kind of propaganda. Mm-hmm. It's so important to get the real information out to people. Right, we need to see But uh, we're going to have to take a very short break, and uh, we will be back in just one minute with Kimberly Ells. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. with uh, Kimberly Ells, the author of the book, The Invincible Family. Why do you call families invincible? Well, I fought hard for that title of that book because I thought it was so essential. Um, my message is not, with calling it The Invincible Family, that uh, the family is immune to problems or difficulties or, you know, even great heartache and, and problems. Um, but the, my message is that since people spring from other people, uh, the, the cooperative anatomy of men and women is the thing that creates life, which in turn creates families. And so you, you can't, you really can't stop the family because it is the thing that is continually brought to the fore. Um, no matter, e even if there's, you know, um, regimes in power or, uh, you know, communist domination or all these things. And even if really bad things happen in our culture or our society, the family is a thing that is always going to rise again. It always, it always will. Um, unless you defeat anatomy, which is, which is another thing that's happening through the transgender agenda right now. But, um, even, even then the seeds of life are planted in our bodies and that the family is reborn every time a baby is born. And that brings with it a whole host of good. Um, again, not that bad things don't or can't happen in families, but also the best things in life tend to happen in families. And the deepest kind of loves tend to happen in families. And that's something that I think by the God design of God is designed to always come back, to always rise again, kind of like the phoenix from the ashes. Even if society falls apart, what's going to rise up again? <laughs> the family. It, it will be the family. Well, you know, I can remember as a, as a youngster growing up, uh, the series on television frequently featured strong nuclear families. Why, mm -hmm. why is the nuclear family under attack? I mean, what is the purpose of it? Well, there, it's been said that between the totalitarian state and the individual lies the family. And the family is the protective layer between the state taking over and the private individual and that the family, it seems like, oh, well, how, how strong is the family? Well, it turns out it's, it's pretty darn strong. And here's, here's why. Um, I start off the, my book, The Invincible Family, talking about the bond of mothers and babies. And that seems very commonplace. We tend to take that for granted. But if you think about it, when, when a baby is born, it's always born to a mother, their mother. It's always a woman. And hopefully there's a man there too, the husband, the father. But there's always a, a woman. And a woman tends to believe that that baby that she has carried and birthed belongs to her. And almost everyone in the world would agree that that, that baby belongs to her. And so what that does 
is it establishes the idea of privatization and it creates the, it orients the world to be governed and managed on a private level, a family level. Now we have larger level governments in place, but their major role, if they understand it correctly, is to protect the rights of individuals and families. But the family is unique because it always is a stumbling block to the power of the state because it's private, because parents think that their children belong to them, not somebody else, not the state. And so it's very difficult for the state to walk in and, and uh, or in any regime of any kind to walk in and say, no, you're going to raise your children like this because parents say, no, we're not. We're going to teach our children whatever we want. And so um, this is why collectivist uh, programs have so often failed. It's because of the power of the family. So you asked, why is the family under attack? That's why. Because if there are entities that have global aims, which there are, and many of them are anchored at the United Nations, then they have to weaken and work to destroy the family so that they can usurp then the power that families, the families of the earth, inherently have. That's one of the best explanations of it I've ever heard. That was very good. Now, when it comes to the feminist movement today, uh, is there a link to socialism there? Oh, absolutely. And early on in my book, I have a brief uh, chapter kind of going through the uh, crash course on socialism, and then I juxtapose it with feminism. And the 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 connection is so clear. So just in brief, so Mark, you know, Karl Marx and his right hand man, Frederick Engels, they had this great plan. They thought, okay, well, we'll eliminate private property. The state will just sort of run things. And once everyone isn't competing and there, no one has more than anyone else, we have, quote, equality, then everyone will just be magically happy, right? But in order to do this, part of the, what what Engels wrote was that um, for that to happen, that women needed to be, quote, freed from the care of their children so that they could, in his words, uh, participate in socially productive work. So if you look at that argument closely, you see that Marx and Engels are arguing that raising humanity, raising children is not socially productive work. And, but if you look even closer, so if you say, okay, well, raising children, raising humanity is just the grunt work. We've got to get women and parents out of that spot and get them into the workforce so that they can contribute to the gross domestic product. Well, then who's taking care of the children? This has been and still remains a key question. And if the parents are not taking care of the children, the state is in the perfect position to usurp the care and teaching of children. In fact, that's what Engels said. He said in a socialist society, quote, the care and education of children becomes a public affair. And so that's what we've seen happen even over the past two uh, centuries in our culture and in our nation is that education of children has become a public affair. And now the move is to make the care of children, even at their youngest ages, a public affair. And guess what? That's bad news because the state can't raise your child the way a mother can, the way a father can. And the power in the teaching of parents is paramount and, and the state can have great influence and, and, but they're, their motives are different. Parents are usually motivated 
by love, by the love of their children. They want the well-being of their children. Of course, there are terrible parents in the world. We, of course, have to acknowledge that. But most parents, uh, even the data reflects this very clearly, most parents are the best guardians of their children. And the state can't say that. The mm-hmm. state, the record of the state in raising children is very bad. Children raised in, you know, communal or uh, adoptive, you know, orphanages, it's fantastically a poor record. That's because the state or state entities can't actually love children and can't care about them the way a parent does. And so the result is different. So if we as a society are saying that we're okay with uh, conceding not only the education, but the care of our little children over to other people, over to non-parents, that is a that is a recipe for disaster. That's the reason that Vladimir Lenin said, give me your children to teach for four years and the seed that I sow will never be uprooted. Recognizing right. that at that tender, impressionable age, uh, you really had your best chance of molding that child. And That's exactly even the right. Bible says it too. Uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. So mm-hmm. those early years, those formative years, are so incredibly important. And the concept of children uh, belonging to the whole community and the whole society was uh, just advocated recently by the current president of the United States. He actually made that statement. And, and, you know, when President Biden made that statement recently, it's just rehashing the old same socialist philosophy, you know, that uh, that the the children belong to all of us. No, they don't. They belong to specific parents because they're born to them and because that matters. Now, of course, we have a social opportunity and responsibility to care for for other children in the general sense. Of course, we care about our neighbor's kids, but we we don't have the stewardship that we have over our own children. And, and that's, that matters. And that's, that's intentional, I think, on God's part, because then you see, if every person's, if every child is loved by his or her parents, and that child's well-being is looked out for specifically by his or her parents, then theoretically, every child has guardians in their life. Now, as we all know, sometimes this, this system breaks down, but when it does, the results are often negative and very bad for individuals in society. And so when families, when the family model is followed and supported as closely as it can be, uh, of course, allowing for death and divorce happens and different things do happen. And those don't have to be a, a death sentence to children. But when the family model of parents looking over and caring for and providing for their own children is is followed, that brings about the best outcomes and the best support of human rights for children that that is that is possible. There's a study done, you know, many studies have been done, but one that says that the the mother the the warmth of a mother's relationship with her child is the biggest predictor of outcomes on all levels for children, emotional, social, and economic success. The the warmth of the mother's relationship with her children is the biggest factor affecting the child for the the length of the child's life. And and so that's something that if we're crafting policy, we need to pay attention to that and support the family, not to treat the family as an enemy to the child, but treat the family as the very best thing for the child in almost all cases. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I certainly would agree in my own case that it was my mother's influence that 
uh, made the biggest difference in the life of myself and my brother. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, she had the worst possible circumstances growing up and then got married and found out that her husband was a bigamist. I mean, she really did not have a whole lot going for her, but mm -hmm. she really loved us and she wanted to make sure we were successful. And she got criticized so much. They said, you can't make boys stay in the house and read books. But uh, she got the last laugh because one became a brain right. surgeon and one became a rocket scientist. So right. I think maybe she knew what she was talking about. <laughs> I think she did. And and see, all of the all of the terrible things that your mother was facing, the thing that trumped that all for her, as you said, was her love for her boys, for you. And that mattered. That ended up mattering more than anything else. All those other factors, and now you know. Look at look at your life, and and you're not alone in that. Like George Washington famously said, you know, all that I am, I owe to the teaching of my mother. Same thing with Abraham Lincoln. All that I am, I owe to my angel mother. Absolutely. And so, you know, there is something. Uh, mother love is held up as kind of the gold standard uh, of of love and devotion. That you know, and uh, there's a reason for that because it is. Well. Uh, just changing directions just slightly here. Uh, why do you think the socialists are so anxious to get rid of God? Well, <laughs> that that's part of the whole program, right? Marx and Engels, again, in the Communist Manifesto, that's one of the, the major planks of the platform is to remove belief in God. And because if, 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 the core, if someone does not have a core belief about why life matters, um, kind of the framework for believing why life is even happening, then they are susceptible. They will be searching for a framework to hang their life on because we crave that kind of order. We crave purpose. We want our lives to matter. And so if God is removed as the purpose for our lives, another thing will be put in its place. And of course, you know, the thing that the, the socialist movement, communist movement wants to put in, in the place of that is devotion to the system. You know, these days you could say devotion to equality, uh, devotion to the state. And we've seen that played out time and time and time again. But devotion to the state or devotion even to the ideal of equality is not a good enough reason to hang your life upon. And it becomes empty and hollow. But in the meantime, you know, when you get rid of God for people, it makes them fall prey to all kinds of uh, of lesser uh, schemes and, you know, ideas, and they're more easily controlled. If they've lost their focus on the fact that God is real and exists and is, uh, you know, uh, overseeing the universe and will help you in your individual life, if that's all stripped away, people are going to be grasping for straws and they'll take whatever you hand them. And so that's, you know, I think the, the root of why God is, is pushed out of the picture by these uh, ideologies. Absolutely. And I, and I hope Americans can see this infiltration of this ideology into our system, into our society. It's being introduced in very benign ways and uh, sugar-coated, but uh, the end result is as bitter as wormwood. And I, I hope people are listening carefully and are paying attention and seeing how quickly a society can actually change. And we'll be back in one minute with our guest, Kimberly Ells.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. And we're back with our fascinating guest, Kimberly Ells, who wrote the book, The Invincible Family. And uh, we're having a very interesting discussion about how the family fits in and how socialism is not necessarily friendly to the family. I was thinking about socialism and abortion. It seems like the socialists are very pro-abortion. Why do you think that is the case? Well, going a couple of reasons, but going back to our previous conversation about the bond between mothers and babies, um, abortion is, of course, uh, the ultimate hacking apart of the bond be- between mother and child, very literally. You know, there's a- all these ideologies at play to reduce and minimize and short circuit the connection between mothers and children. But abortion accomplish that, accomplishes that immediately and physically and the the arguments that have put forward to women for the reasons why they should abort, abort their own children cre- they frame women then they 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 put the women in positions of being instead of creators of life it makes them takers of life which is one of the most tragic things that can be imagined and, and then to get women to celebrate that uh, is just um, kind of astounding and and, and deeply sad. Um, so if you, I, I mean, there's many reasons why, if you want to reduce love in a society, you can convince women that it's their right to eliminate their own children. And we've seen the damage that many women, uh, that has been done to many women uh, post-abortive and the Absolutely. deep sorrow and regret and tragedy that many women, not all women, but many women, feel. And that, again, if you can convince the life givers in society, which are women, that their their most celebrated role is to take life instead, that that is huge. And that is a huge uh, ideological victory and uh, for, for evil forces, in my opinion. And it also Absolutely. defeats the woman individually. You know, when I, okay, so I, I have 
quick story here. I have five children, four daughters, very close in age, and they're all college age now. And then we have a 12-year gap in our family, and then I have a little six-year-old boy. So we have this these older girls and then this this little boy, and I was 42 when I had him. And it was very interesting, just kind of illustrating this this principle. It was really interesting to see people's reactions when, you know, when I turned up for pregnant at age 42 and having a baby and, and, uh, I went to a doctor's appointment, you know, about halfway through my pregnancy and they were drawing some blood or whatever. And the lab tech who was with, with me there, it was a woman, uh, she's taking my blood and she said, she found out how old I was, you know, that I was pregnant. And she said, Oh, if I, if I were you, I'd have to slip my wrists. And I well, thought, well, <laughs> I'm not gonna, uh, but, and I understand that, you know, it would be a shocker for some old women old, older as I was to be pregnant, but the underlying, what you can see there though, is the underlying, I don't know, feeling that children are a burden rather than a blessing. Now they are yeah. a burden. They're a great responsibility, but they're also a blessing and the blessing yeah, outweighs the burden. And anyone who's had children knows that. And so when, when even I, and you know, in my circumstances, I'm getting kind of shocker feedback, like, oh my gosh, how, how could you be pregnant? This is awful. Well, it wasn't, it turns out, it, although I was myself a little shocked at first, it didn't turn out to be awful. In fact, it turned out to be the greatest thing ever. And, and we couldn't have imagined how our little, little guy would just bless and enrich our lives. And that's what so many women are, are missing out on. They've listened to the rhetoric. They've listened to the story that children are going to rob their, rob them of their lives, basically. And once you have a kid, your, your happy life is over. That's just, just so far from the truth. Our, Our little guy makes us laugh every day. One example, when he was four, um, we were, he and I were at the top of water slide about to go down together. And just out of the blue, he looks up at me and he says, mom, you're my favorite girl in the whole world. I love you more than anyone else. And, (laughs) you know, my heart's melting. But the thing is, he says stuff like that to me all the time. And Mm. that's not unique to me and my son. That happens in all families. You know, that kind of love, you can't buy that kind of love. That's why families exist, To, in my opinion, to create that kind of love. Like my son just loves me just because I'm his mom and I take care of him. And I, lo- and I love him in that same intense way that I would give my life for him. And I do day by day. You know, we all give our, our lives minute by minute to the, the people around us. And, and yeah, that's, that's not a bad thing. It's that, not, that makes us more noble, good people. Right. And it's what it's what some of these young women are looking for when they go out and get pregnant and they don't have a husband. They they just mm-hmm. want somebody who will love them unconditionally. And that, unfortunately, right. turns out not to be so good for the kid a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. And that's why the whole whole family structure right. is so vitally important. But, you know, the other thing about abortion, you know, it, it, it makes people more callous toward life. And and as we've grown more callous toward mm-hmm. the concept of life, our relationships with each other have come into question. And I, I think that's one of the reasons there's mm-hmm. so much division mm-hmm. and hatred in our country uh, right now. 
the reason that we see all of these mass shootings. People have just lost their love and their respect for each other. Instead of love your neighbor or cancel your neighbor, uh, all of these things, I think, are, mm -hmm. are related. And uh, it's, it's a very sad time, but people like yourself who are out there fighting, warriors who are talking about this, people who have courage, that's what's going to make the difference for us as a nation. Now, the, the, the next thing I, I wanted to ask you about is the trans movement. Uh, completely non-scientific. Mm -hmm. uh, we already know that if you have mm -hmm. two X's, as far as your chromosomal pattern is concerned, you're female. If you have an X and a Y, mm -hmm. you're a male. And we've known what males and females mm -hmm. were for thousands of years. And now all of a sudden, we don't know anymore. How does that impact the family? Well, it, it impacts it in really kind of s sneaky ways. And I, and I spend a, a chapter on this in the book. I spend one chapter talking about uh, the gay movement, the LGBT movement, and how that was all packaged together. But, and then the next chapter talks about transforming the argument and the trans movement and how um, it's it's very tricky, right? Because the L, the G, the B, and the T were all put in one lump sum and we were meant to accept them as as one thing but what we're discovering is that they're not at all the same and and i highlighted this in in the book because same-sex attraction is based on the idea that uh that same-sex attraction is is a biological uh, phenomenon and there's there's disagreement about that there's most people think there's a lot of different factors that that go into that perhaps biological is one of them but and so then the, if it is biological, then the argument is that that should be honored. Well, if you if you then are going to be consistent in your arguments um, and you look to the T, the transgen transgender movement, that is a different argument altogether that changes the body and the biology from being the expert that we honor to being the enemy that we have to change. And so it's completely different argument. It, it's non-biological. Um, it's based on something that could be considered even more religious than anything else, a belief about, you know, that there is a possibility that you could even be born in the wrong body. Well, how would that happen? Who's in charge of putting your essence into a body if that's in fact how it happens? So anyway, so that's kind of, I think the trans movement rode in on the heels of the gay movement, which there may be some element, some elements of the gay movement and uh, that are valid. But the trans movement came in on those coattails and everyone just tended to accept that when when we shouldn't have, because they are totally different and their their ideologies are divergent in almost every way. And and you asked how this impacts the family. And it's really interesting. So same the, even the word same sex, same sex attraction, same sex marriage, that idea upholds uh, the reality that. There is, in fact, an opposite sex, a, a set sex and one that is opposite to that. These days, people call that binary. So in a same sex ideology, the uh, idea of the binary is very clearly upheld because same sex and then opposite sex means something. Um, but in the trans movement, that, that doesn't exist at, at all. And so now we see that, uh, uh, you know, a portion of the population no longer believes that uh, women exist as an inherently as physically as a class of people or men. And so 
then so then and legal movements are are beginning to support this right that you can't really tell from you the body of a person doesn't indicate their maleness or femaleness well if that's true it, it isn't true but it's being taken as true so if that is true then um it's becoming laws are beginning to be framed in such a way that it's uh at the very least culturally inappropriate and the worst illegal to differentiate someone based on their body, to differentiate between some, someone being a male and a female. And right. if you can no longer differentiate bet between males and females, of course, there's the many issues, the bathroom issues, sports issue, all these other issues, but there's a deeper issue. And that's with the family. Because if you can't um, legally define or defend uh, what, what a male is or what a female is, then it also becomes very tricky to define and defend what a mother is or a father is because mother is a sex specific designation. And so is father sex specific. And so if, if those things, if we can't uh, talk about those things or make legal decisions based on those things anymore, the, the, the everything is up in the air. Everything is up for grabs. And so the family, you know, the whole idea of who is a parent, who is a mother, who is a father begins to entrench upon uh, parental rights. And, and I don't even think we've seen the beginning of how this is, is going to, af to affect family law. Um, of course, we're already seeing how the trans movement is breaking up families in, in uh, convincing children to disavow their parents if their parents believe that they are the sex that they are. And, and so, of course, it's ripping up families one by one. But the thing I'm, I'm concerned, I, I am very concerned about that. But more broadly, I'm also concerned about the, the legal movements that are working to unhinge the family and unhinge parental rights uh, based on the fact that on the belief that, that, that male and female don't matter and don't exist. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, I just want to ask you before we close, uh, any parting uh, thoughts? And before you give us those, where can people get your book? Oh, thank you. My website is invinciblefamily.com. You can find it there. It's also on Amazon. That's the easiest place, Amazon Prime. Um, invinciblefamily.com not only has my book, but also there's a link to all of my articles that, that might be helpful to people kind of bite-sized pieces. Um, and just sort of wrapping up, I want to go back to what you were saying a moment ago, um, that, you know, a lot of this, we see fa the fabric of society unraveling at the seams. And um, there's many reasons for that. But I think the main reason for that is the unraveling of the family, specifically the mother-child Bond. There's a psychologist whose work I love and often quote, Erica Komazar, and she says that many of the problems that we're seeing today are the effects of maternal absence on our children. And she calls maternal absence one of the so greatest social issues of our times. And she's a left-leaning uh, woman. She's a left-leaning psychologist. But in her 25 years of practice, she has seen the devastation that comes to children when their mothers are not there. Now, that doesn't mean that mom can't ever work. And that's not my message. But when a child is consistently with their mother in their earliest years, their first three to four years of life, the effect is profound. And when mother is not there, 
in, in a, not just in the room, but emotionally present for her child. The child's mind is oriented in an entirely different way. And they feel valued and loved in a way that, that no one else can produce for them. And so I think that, you know, we, we, we're all alarmed at the, the decay of society, which has just seemed to um, happen at such a rapid rate. I believe much of what we're seeing is the result of the absence of mothering and fathering because it matters more than anything else. So, but the hopeful thing is that that means it's fixable because we as mothers and fathers were in the driver's seat. And if we can entice and invite people back to the family and to see the family as a social good and as mothering and as fathering as a productive and good way to spend your life, a worthwhile way to spend years of your life is mothering and fathering, then we can, we can turn it around. We really can. And so although we're concerned, I'm, I'm still hopeful. Well, we have a major battle on our hands. There's no question about that. And, uh, you know, the people who are advocating some of these incredible social changes, uh, I'm sure in the long run would look back and say, what the heck were we doing? But we're in the middle of it now and we just have to continue the fight. And uh, I just want to thank you for being a, a social warrior and being out there because I know you get slings and arrows for doing stuff like that. But uh, in the long run, we're going to win. <laughs> we're gonna we are. Win. The family will triumph. Truth will triumph. It's invincible. <laughs> That's right. It's invincible. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for spending some valuable time with us today. Thank you. I just want to thank our wonderful guest, Kimberly Ells, who has just done a fantastic job of, of highlighting the role of the family in our society, why it's under attack. And uh, please go out and get her book and uh, continue to follow her and encourage her and what she's doing. It's a very important part of what's happening to our society. And for your prescription for this week, you know, back in high school, remember reading the book by George Orwell, Animal Farm? It was really about socialism. And uh, if you haven't read it in a long time or if you've never read it, go and read that book. There's a lot of things that are going on in our society today that you will recognize. And it's very important to be able to see before these things happen what is happening so that you can react the right way and prepare yourself. Animal Farm by George Orwell. And uh, while you're at it, read 1984 too. Same author, uh, a very similar theme. It's good to know about this stuff. And Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky will tell you exactly what's going on right now. It's very nice to know about these things. And uh, that's going to be it for this week. Uh, don't forget uh, Apple Podcasts. You can get for free. Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, make sure you don't miss any episodes. Uh, tell your friends and family. Rate us. 
review us, and uh, let's do all that we can to spread common sense. Let's make common sense common sense again. And uh, that's it for now. Remember the cornerstones, faith, liberty, community, and life. See you next week.